Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. We'll get to the recording of this Sunday's message in just a moment, but first I want to ask, are you a listener who does not attend in person on Sundays, but who would be interested in meeting with other St. Paul's listeners in your area for a small group? Right now we have a couple people connected to St. Paul's who live in the New Haven shoreline area who would like to start an in-person small group you know, to meet for fellowship and discussion of the previous week's message. And so if you happen to be from the New Haven shoreline area and you would be interested in that, please email me to let me know. Ryan at stpaulswired.org. That's stpaulswired.org. And if you're not in that area, but you're in another area and you'd be interested in meeting with other listeners there, Email me to let me know what area you're from, and maybe we can put something together. In fact, even if you're not interested in a small group, but you're just a regular listener who doesn't attend in person, we'd love to hear from you just to know that you're out there, uh, because we don't really know how many people listen to this. So if you're willing, we'd love to hear from you. And as always, we'd love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. So this is our sixth week now in our Jesus and the Women of Faith series, where we're looking at Jesus' interactions with women in the Gospels. And the passage that we're looking at today is actually a personal favorite of mine. Uh, this is John chapter 8, starting in verse 2. So if you want to follow along in your own Bible, I encourage you to turn there. John 8, verse 2. Lord, uh, we are here this morning because we want to worship in spirit and in truth. And so right now, we invite you to speak to us through the scriptures, Lord. Help us to see you for who you truly are. And help us to respond in a spirited way, Lord, filled with your Holy Spirit, uh, worshiping you for who you truly are in spirit and in truth. Help us to do that now as we attend to the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, 
Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. All right, I want to begin by acknowledging what might be an elephant in the room for a few of you. Uh, if you were following along in your own Bible, there's a good chance that this passage is preceded by an editor's note. In fact, in my New International Version of the Bible, the text is in italics to set it apart from what goes before and after. And that is because um, the earliest manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of John don't include this story. And so the scholarly consensus is that when the Gospel of John was first composed, this story wasn't in there. And I just want us to take a moment to appreciate how honest our Bibles are about this, right? Um, they don't try to hide this, right? They just recognize it. And, and in fact, if you read the entire New Testament, you'll find that there are almost hardly any editorial notes like this. The big two are this story and the end of the Gospel of Mark. And there's a few sentences here and there, but by and large, what we have in our Bibles today is supported by the earliest manuscripts that we have, okay? So you can kind of see as the exceptions that prove the rule, right? By and large, um, the, 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 the Bible that we have today is identical uh, to those ancient manuscripts. Now, because this passage wasn't in the earliest manuscripts, there are some pastors who will not preach it. Because they reason, well, if it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John, if it wasn't originally in there, then we shouldn't think of it as Holy Scripture. But we also need to keep in mind that this story does appear to be a genuine account from Jesus' life. It has the marks of historical veracity. And I'm not going to get into all the details why, but I am convinced that it bears the marks, marks of historical veracity. So we also know there, there are hints that it was being shared in the early Christian community in the first 100 years of the church uh, very early on. And obviously, it was important enough to the church that it eventually found its way into the Gospel of John. And actually, some early manuscripts of the Gospel of Luke include this, too. So, for me, I think it should be preached, because what's more important to me is, is it something that Jesus actually did, than whether or not it was in the original Gospel of John, right? I mean, keep in mind, all the Gospels, some Gospels include things that other Gospels don't, right? We don't say, oh, this story in the Gospel of John isn't in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, so we're not going to look at it, right? So, I think it should be preached. And not only that, but it has been very important and significant in the lives of many people in the Christian church throughout the centuries. So, let's look at the story. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law bring to Jesus a woman caught in adultery. And this is typical of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They're always trying to set a trap for Jesus. That's actually what's going on here. This isn't just about zealousness for the law. They are trying to trap Jesus. They want to put him in an impossible situation, a no-win situation. And this is a doozy. They're doing a great job here, okay? 
They've brought a woman who is caught in the act of adultery, which means there is no question she is guilty. Caught in the act. The text never questions that she's guilty. Jesus acknowledges that she's guilty, right? And the law of Moses said that adulterers should be stoned, stoned to death. And so the religious leaders bring this woman to Jesus, and they put Jesus on the spot. And they say, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Now, they put Jesus in a very awkward position. They know that Jesus is not the type to condemn. Right? Jesus said, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And Jesus took heat for spending time with tax collectors and the people that would be socially stigmatized as the sinners. Right? The, uh, the Pharisees, at one point, they, they come to Jesus and they say, why do you spend time with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you eat with them? They probably knew that Jesus had even invited a tax collector to be among his disciples, right? Matthew. And Jesus' response is, it is not the healthy that need a doctor. He says, go and learn what this means. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. So they knew that Jesus was not inclined to condemn. But they had put him in a position where if he did not condemn, they could accuse him of being a lawbreaker. You do not keep the law of Moses. And Jesus claimed to be fulfilling the law of Moses. He said, I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. So if Jesus defends this woman... He could be accused of law-breaking. But on the other hand, if Jesus says, well, we should stone her, he's got another problem because the Roman authorities had actually forbid the Jews from executing capital punishment. You might remember that when Jesus is arrested, he's taken to Pontius Pilate. Pilate says, judge him by your own law. Take him and go judge him on your own. And what do they say? They say, but we don't have the authority to execute anybody. So that was true. They didn't have that authority. Now, that doesn't mean that they never executed anybody, but it was risky. It was risky to do it because technically you were not supposed to, and it might provoke the ire of the powerful Roman Empire. Right? So if Jesus says, yes, stone her, he potentially gets Rome on his bad side, which could lead to his crucifixion even earlier than planned. So Jesus is backed into a corner, caught between a rock and a hard place. And so the first thing he does is he bends down and he writes in the dust with his finger. It's weird. What was he doing? What was he writing? Well, there's several common theories that people suggest for what he might have been writing in the dust. Uh, one is he was writing the sins that the men were guilty of who were accusing the woman. 
Uh, another is that he was writing the laws that they were guilty of breaking. And some others suggest that maybe he was writing the men's names, or the names of the men who were particularly guilty. And one of the reasons people suspect this is because the prophet Jeremiah wrote, Jeremiah 17, 13, those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. So Jesus may be alluding to that verse here, which there is some merit to that view, right? Because right before this, Jesus described himself as the spring of living water. And these people are for sure forsaking him, right? Because they're trying to trap him. So Jesus might have been alluding to this, right? As a way of saying that you people are like the judged generation of Jeremiah, just as corrupt as they were. But here is the truth. Nobody knows. Text doesn't tell us. What Jesus wrote, we can only guess. So I think that the true meaning here lies not in what he wrote, but the way he wrote. It says he wrote in the ground with his finger. Writing with your finger is kind of a weird thing to do, right? Ordinarily, we would write with pens or pencils. In those days, they wrote with quills or reeds. And even if you were going to write in the dust, right, I, I mean, I would prefer to use a stick myself, right, or maybe even my foot. But he writes with his finger. There is somebody else who's described as writing with his finger in the Bible. Deuteronomy 9.10, Moses says, The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain. So, the Jews said that the law was written by the finger of God. And in our passage, a dispute is taking place about the law, about interpreting the law. And Jesus begins to write with his finger. St. Augustine said that the point here is that Jesus is the divine legislator. Jesus is the lawgiver. Jesus is the finger of God made flesh. He is the law of God rightly interpreted and fully revealed. And so we should pay close attention to how he handles this situation, right? He says one sentence to the mob. Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he goes back to writing in the dust. Here's how I think that would have landed on their ears. Something like this. You think she should die? Okay. First, examine yourself. Are you pure enough to execute that kind of judgment? Would you want your life to be subject to the same level of scrutiny as this woman? If the law can be used to condemn her, could it be used to condemn you? Think about it. 
There's a hint in this story that these, these men were perfectly willing to disregard the parts of the law that didn't serve them. I mean, the law said that both the man and the woman should be stoned. Where's the guy? If she was caught in the act, I mean, you can't commit adultery by yourself. The guy had to be there. But for some reason, they're not interested in initiating stoning him. Right? So are they really that faithful to the law? Doesn't seem like it. I, I love what Jesus does. It's brilliant. Right? They try to trap him with a question. A question which is essentially, are you faithful to the Mosaic law? And Jesus turns around and he puts it on them and he says, are you? Are you faithful? It's as if Jesus is saying, if you're ready to be judged by the standards of the law, then pick up a stone and be the first one to throw. Aim for the teeth. I'll just be over here writing in the dust, giving you the willies because you can tell that I know the secrets of your heart and I'm the divine legislator in the flesh. And so Jesus silences them. It says one by one they leave. And there's an interesting detail there. It says the older ones leave first. Probably because age had softened them a little, made them a little less arrogant. They knew they had rap sheets long enough to condemn them in the eyes of the law. And as the older ones acknowledged their sinfulness, the younger ones did too. You know, judgmental attitudes are contagious. That's how you get an angry mob, right? But humility, vulnerability is also contagious if someone is brave enough to start the trend. So the mob is now gone. Jesus is alone with the woman. He straightens up from writing in the dust. And he looks her face to face. And he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she responds, probably still shaking, heart racing, mouth dry. No one, sir. And Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. She was alone with the one who actually was without sin. But he doesn't cast the first stone. He doesn't even say something like, well, you know, let's go get the man and do this right. Let's go to the court, right? No, he just says, I don't condemn you. The divine legislator, the finger of God in the flesh, forgives her, and then he sends her out into new life. Now, I've been calling this sermon series Jesus and the Women of Faith, and that sermon series title isn't entirely appropriate in this case, when you think about it, because the woman in this story doesn't actually demonstrate faith, right? She calls Jesus sir. That's respectful, 
But I don't think we should make too much of that. She doesn't call him Lord. The only thing this woman brings to this story is her guilt. That's it. But Jesus refuses to condemn her. Now, I don't think the sermon series title is entirely inappropriate either. Because I strongly suspect that a woman of faith was created on this day. Don't you think? When we experience grace like this, it transforms us. When Jesus said, go now and leave your life of sin, I don't hear that so much as a warning or even as a command, but as him speaking new life into being. Go now and leave your life of sin. It reminds me of that famous scene from Les Miserables. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. The protagonist, Jean Valjean, he's finally out of prison after 19 years. He needs a place to stay one night, and he ends up in the home of a clergyman, a bishop. The bishop is very kind, takes him in, feeds him, gives him a place to, to sleep. But then in the night, Jean Valjean gets up, steals all the silver, and takes off with it. And the authorities recognize this ex-convict, Jean Valjean. They see where he's come from, and they bring him back to the bishop. And when the bishop sees him and the, the cops, he says, Oh, I'm so glad you brought him back. Jean Valjean, you forgot the candlesticks. And uh, so the police leave, convinced that they were mistaken. And then the bishop says to Jean Valjean, Now don't you forget, don't you ever forget, you've promised to become a new man. And Jean Valjean is like, promise? What? Because he didn't promise. He says, he says, why are you doing this? And the bishop says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. Go now and leave your life of sin. A profound act of forgiveness followed by those kinds of words, that creates new life. That's what, what it did for Valjean, if you know the story. Changed his life. And I'd be willing to bet the same was true for this woman. Life-changing grace. Now, a story like this can disturb some people because they think the woman got off too easy. They might think, well, I mean, yeah, she shouldn't have been killed. I wouldn't want her to be killed. But, I mean, shouldn't Jesus have admonished her a little bit more? Shouldn't he have given her a thorough penance plan, right? Shouldn't uh, he have needed her to do some things before pronouncing that she wasn't condemned? Some people worry that a story like this might lead to moral laxness, that it might lead some people to think that adultery isn't that big of a deal. I think that that really might be the underlying reason why some people are uncomfortable preaching this passage. 
Because it just seems like the woman got off a little too easy, maybe a lot too easy. But clearly the point of the story isn't that adultery isn't a big deal. The point is that Christ offers us new life through forgiveness. The woman was as good as dead, but Christ gave her new life. We have a tendency to think that if the law is severe enough, it will create new moral life. If the punishments are harsh, harsh enough, then the law will create new moral life. But this woman lived in a society where adultery could lead to stoning, to execution. But she still committed adultery. The law was powerless to save her. But what the law was powerless to do, Christ's mercy could accomplish. Notice, in this story, faith doesn't lead to forgiveness. No. Forgiveness leads to faith. Or at least forgiveness creates the opportunity for faith. And that's how the gospel works. Sometimes we get it backwards, but that's how it works. It creates the opportunity for new life, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. So I want to bring things to a close this morning with a thought. Today, some of us probably need to see ourselves in the woman, and some of us probably need to see ourselves in the accusers, and some of us probably need to see ourselves in both. All of us are, to some extent, both accuser and accused. So I'll start with those of us who need to see ourselves in the accusers. Are you the type of person to throw the first stone? Of course, I don't mean that literally. I mean it metaphorically. But you know what I mean. Are you the kind of person to throw the first stone? Are you inclined to condemn? If so, notice this. Jesus was not. Throughout his whole ministry, people were waiting for him to throw the first stone. They wanted him to throw that first stone against the Roman Empire. Right? They wanted to, him to be a conquering Messiah who would lead a violent uprising against Rome. And they kept waiting for it and waiting for it and waiting for it. And they were eager. If he would just throw that first stone, then the whole mob would join in and rise into a violent frenzy. But Jesus kept refusing to throw the first stone, kept refusing to throw the first stone, even when that meant that he ended up going to the cross. And he was clear that he had plenty of stones to throw. On the night that he was arrested, he said, Peter, don't you realize that I could call on my father in this moment and at once have 12 legions of angels to defend us? But he doesn't do it. He doesn't throw the stone. Instead, he let humanity throw stones at him when he died on the cross. And even then, he wasn't throwing stones back. He prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If we claim to follow Jesus, if we say, he is my Lord, he is my rabbi, we should not be inclined to condemn, but to forgive. 
even if we can cite chapter and verse for why people are guilty and deserving of punishment, which they are, we should not be eager to throw that stone. And Jesus shows us that the key to softening our judgmental hearts is to recognize our own sin. As he said on the Sermon on the Mount, do not judge lest you be judged. Are we humble enough to recognize our own guilt before God? Do we realize that we need mercy too? And then those of us this morning, um, some of us this morning need to see ourselves in the woman, right? Guilty, no excuse, caught in the act. Maybe you're very aware of your sin. Maybe you're overcome by the shame of it. Maybe your life has been robbed of joy and peace because of it. It hangs over you like a dark cloud of condemnation all the time. You're haunted, haunted by past decisions, actions, mistakes. They weigh you down with, with regret. They make getting through each day a chore. This morning you need to imagine Jesus looking into your eyes and saying, I do not condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Or like the bishop said to Valjean, I've ransomed you from fear and hatred and I give you back to God. The bishop in the story was willing to pay the price for all that silver, right? He was willing to absorb the cost in order to set Valjean free. He was willing to pay that price. Well, Christ was willing to pay a much bigger price. He was willing to pay the price to set you free. And if you doubt that, think of the cross. Set your eyes, your thoughts on the cross. That is where he chose to be stoned in the place of sinners. Where he chose to be stoned rather than to stone. Think of that and hear this. You are not condemned. Today is a new day. Go out into new life. Jesus is sending you into it. Lord, for any of us this morning who need to hear that, we pray that we would hear it and that we would receive it. Lord, we thank you for sending us into new life. And we pray that as we receive your mercy, you would empower us to give your mercy to others. To be people who do not throw the first stone. Help us, Lord, to be free from our sin, to go out into new life. We thank you, Lord, that you were stoned in our place. In Jesus' name, amen.